0: Thank you, Michelle. That's great. So why then are we looking at this letter? Who wrote it? Who's it for? And what does this mean for us? Well, here's a few reasons. We're looking at the book of James, firstly, because this is God's word to us. Secondly, because it seemed somewhat appropriate to us, having gone through a couple of months looking at something Old Testament-y, we're now looking at something from the New Testament. And thirdly, because it seemed that such a book was pretty well-timed for us as a church. It's punchy, it's very direct, and at a time when most of us can maybe uh, be or uh, become a little bit t- too comfortable at times with what I've kind of called the uh, the dressing gown and church at home at Christianity. No offence if you are sat there right now, you enjoy your cup of coffee. Um, it may well help us to refocus a little bit on how we should be living we know there are a variety of reasons why people are unable uh, to join us here and we know there's a different journey that we're each going through in terms of that moving back to be one uh, and another together we need though one another don't we and it's difficult as we're seeking to think how we might do that in this very strange season James though is quite a unique book he doesn't deal with the essence of salvation at all he doesn't mention the crucifixion or the resurrection of jesus christ at all things aren't mentioned because they're assumed and they're assumed because he's writing predominantly to christians and that's a slot if we know jesus as our lord and savior some people see this book of james as almost being like a commentary going alongside the sermon of the mount i thought that was quite interesting his goal, in one sense, is the same as Jesus, to convince his audience that their professed faith will not benefit them if they say one thing but do another, which, of course, we never do, do we, as believers? Four people. Okay, right. There's a challenge, isn't there? This is what God's word says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not know the truth in 1 corinthians chapter 11 verse 28 and often you would hear these verses read when we have a time of communion let a man or a woman examine himself or herself back in haggai chapter 1 verse 5 we read there here is the word of god consider therefore your ways we're going to have to do that why well because james doesn't mince his words I have warned you now two or three times, so don't expect a softly, softly. Today will be as soft and smooth as it's probably uh, going to be. His, his sentences are short, they're forceful, they're direct, very often prophetic in tone and certainly authoritative, very black and white about application. His application seems to hit, his material seems to hit like arrows into a target. Probably Matt Hancock wouldn't go a great deal on this particular book because there's no room for grey areas whatsoever. There are indeed no restrictions, according to James, to putting your faith, my faith, our faith, into practice. So I hope that as we come together to study this book, we'll want to be not just listeners, but doers of the word, which is what James advocates uh, about that, more about that in the weeks to follow. But firstly, Glenn is going to come and read a few verses for us from the book of James. Firstly, just the first verse in James chapter 1, and then a few verses from James chapter 3.
1: Thank you Roger, you made that easy for me, I don't even have to introduce it. <clears throat> so we start at James chapter 1, just verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord of Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And that's where it ends. And then we come to James 3, uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility, That comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Glenn. Well, who wrote it? Well, James is the book of James. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But which James? Depending on our age, if I was to ask the same question to you, who was the real James Bond? I suspect there would be a variety of answers. So, who was the real James Bond? How many people have played the part of James Bond? Any idea? Was that you, Richard? A James Bond fan there. It is, in fact, seven. Round of applause, please, from Richard. Any, any questions about James Bond, it sounds to me like you need to ask Richard. He knew that straight off, didn't he? It's probably, I suspect, the most four well-known um, uh, actors who've played the, played the part of James Bond would be Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, wouldn't they? So, I'm going to just take a straw poll here. Who, for you, feels like the real James Bond? Is it Sean Connery? If so, put your hands in the air, please. Okay. Most people, that says how old our congregation. Right. Secondly, uh, Roger Moore. Okay. Yeah, two or three there. Okay. Uh, thirdly, Pierce Brosnan. And fourthly, Daniel Craig. That says an incredible amount. You can't see this on the screen here. Nobody's ever even heard of Daniel Craig. He's he's played the part of James Bond for the last uh, four James Bond films. It was actually Roger Moore who played the part of James Bond the most in about eight films. But of course, Sean Connery was the real one, wasn't he? I think think so. But that's maybe reflective of my age as well. (laughs) What we're going to do is have a little bit of a think about who this James was. Because in the same way as I just listed the four most likely um, uh, James Bond uh, people that would have been voted for, we've got four different possible Jameses when we come to who really wrote this book. So for us to understand what's going on here behind the scenes, we're going to take some time this morning thinking about who this person was. What do we know about him as well as what was going on at the time. Helps us uh, know what was happening at the time. There's firstly the James son of Alphaeus and if you're taking notes you may well want to write down Matthew chapter 10. He's named whenever you see a list of disciples. All we know about him is that he may have been the brother of Matthew. In Mark chapter 2 verse 14 we read there that Matthew who's also known as Levi was the son of Alphaeus. If it's the same Alphaeus then James and Matthew were indeed brothers but that's all we know about that particular James. James number two is James, the father of Judas. You can read about him in Luke chapter six, verse 16. This is not Judas Iscariot. That's just to confuse us. This is the other apostle named Judas. He's very obscure. And there's probably no reason to credit him with writing this epistle because we know nothing else about him at all apart from maybe hearing him say, no, I'm not that Judas. I'm the other one. Thirdly, there's James and probably the the most uh, well-known to us, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, the older brother of the apostle John. James and John were volatile uh, men. Uh, They had been labeled the sons of thunder. James was amongst the 12. He was one of that inner core of three that Jesus had, Peter, James, and John. He was called by Jesus when fishing and was the first apostle to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. In the New Testament, he never appears on his own. He's always with his brother apart from when he was martyred. Since he lost his head by Acts chapter 12, it would be impossible for him to have written this letter because he would have been in glory at this time. And then finally, we've got James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19 alludes to that. After the birth of Jesus, after the virgin birth of Jesus, Mary, with her human husband Joseph, went on to bear children, male and female. Uh, Boys and girls, Matthew chapter 13 uh, talks about that. And one of those, most likely the next oldest son, was named james he would have played with jesus as a boy looked up to him as older brother probably got a bit miffed that it was never jesus that got into trouble because he never did anything wrong how frustrating would that have been as a sibling maybe you would have despised him for that we don't know but he certainly did not initially believe that this jesus was god's own son why would he when you think about that a member of your own household we don't know when that change occurred from James not believing to them believing. And yesterday at Cafe Church, we were trying to speculate a little bit about what it must have been like for him and the other siblings to have Jesus in the household. And when did the penny begin to drop? We don't know. We can only speculate. And the time and the place to do that is Cafe Church, not maybe uh, here. We do know. That one Corinthians chapter fifteen verse seven says this: After, <clears throat> after, uh, after that, he was seen by James. That's he was. That was Jesus was seen by James, and then all the apostles. This is in the context of the resurrected uh, Jesus, obviously. James is then there with the believers in the upper room in Acts chapter one verse fourteen, waiting for that Pentecost experience that came when Peter is released miraculously from prison, he told those who've been praying, tell James and the brothers in Acts chapter 12. Then at the council of Jerusalem, which is really quite significant in AD 50, when the church faces this really serious issue, massive tensions that were going on in the church at the time. Uh, And then it's James who presides over that meeting. It's James who's the one who shows clear leadership, saying, brothers, listen to me. And then he declares what the way ahead should be. We should not make it difficult for those who are coming to faith. And that's probably a word that we need to hear regularly, isn't it, for ourselves as a church. Let's not seek to make it difficult for those out there. More about that, I'm sure, as we go through this series. Towards the end of Acts, when Paul arrived at Jerusalem, we read that they went to see James and all the elders were present in chapter 21. Paul calls James a pillar of the church in Galatians 2. So it seems likely that this is the James who penned this letter. The younger brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does he introduce himself in this book? Well, Glenn's already that one solitary verse. We didn't let him go any further in chapter one. That's coming next week. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is James saying? I am a slave of God. That's another translation. I'm a slave of God. Yes, I am a slave of Jesus Christ too. yes he puts Jesus directly alongside God, the man, God, if you like. What a declaration of the deity of our Lord Jesus, as confessed by his younger half-brother, but his brother nonetheless. I serve them equally, he says, both the God that you'll worship and my older brother, because I've now come to recognize who he is. That's quite a A humble statement. Our translation isn't totally the best. It can be translated like this a servant of Jesus Christ, who is both God and Lord. I found that quite helpful. Literally, the translation would read as this James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave. That's how he viewed himself slave bondservant, servant. When it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one we sing about when we're allowed to sing, of course, if you're at home, you can do that. How do we see ourselves in relation to this Jesus? At best, I hope we see ourselves as a servant. It's the best that we could possibly be. But how tough must that have been for someone who is at a family gathering celebrated birthdays and Christmases would they have had we don't know but you know what I mean those family occasions and yet this James has recognized who Jesus is who is it for well there's an interesting verse there to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations which would have gone bang to James's hearers but probably right over the top of our heads it's not easy for us to really get hit with the full force of what he was saying The letter is written to Christians. It's not a Jewish letter. James is telling these Christians that they are actually the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. They knew all about their patriarch, Jacob. We thought last week, didn't we, about the death of Jacob, about his having 12 sons and they're living 400 years in Egypt, by the the end of which they were a mighty people called Israel they were divided into those 12 tribes, each bearing a name of one of Jacob's sons. They were brought into the land of Canaan, settled into it in geographical tribal units. Over the centuries, God's people scattered. Now, James is saying that the real uh, 12 tribes, the real tribes that they are Israel, are God's people. Paul goes on to take that and calls Christians the Israel of God. And if he's saying that they are the 12 tribes in essence we are as well because we are believers. So these believers at the time that were reading this what must they have thought? Probably a couple of things. Oh wow, we are these 12 uh, tribes. That would have been a difficult thing for them to get their heads around. They'd seen God's people the Jewish nation as being these 12 tribes as being uh, the people Israel but now, no no It is God's people who've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ who are in reality these 12 tribes. It's a high calling. God is now specifically saying to us, we are the ones who are heirs of the covenant, heirs of all of God's promises to his people. We better not therefore live as inconsistently as those guys did back then. That would have been the sort of sense that they would have felt. But they are the 12 tribes scattered, Scattering spoke of persecution, danger, pressures, invasion, attack and battles. Such actions have indeed scattered them. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8. But scattering is good for the gospel. Uh, Paul Ellis was hosting a cafe church yesterday and he said, in this last sort of 16, 17 months, do we feel that sense of ourselves having been scattered? Because we've not been able to be in one place, have we? We are now. But as opposed to looking at the negative, of only being out there in different places, so God has placed you where he's placed you to have relationships with those close by you, whether it's in a block of flats or next door to somebody that's, uh, that's in a, a semi-detached or whatever it is, or the neighbor across the street or somebody that you work with, we've been scattered into those places. We're bit by bit having an opportunity to regroup so we can re-encourage one another and re-envision ourselves to what God's calling is for his people, his 12 tribes. It a bit religious to say, well, let's call ourselves the 12 tribes. I'm not advocating that. But what I want us to see is that this letter is for you and me. Not just for a religious named group back then, because that doesn't really connect with us, but it would have done with them. The same hard-hitting effect for ourselves would probably be if we had this letter from James delivered to us and it was addressed to Dorchester Community Church. If you read that in the Word of God, you think what? That would have been the force that James's readers would have felt when they read this letter. Are you with me? Good. About seven. That's Great. We're, in, we're getting there. The numbers are growing all the time, aren't they? I know some of this is a bit, a bit heady and a, a bit head orientated, but it'll be helpful, I think, as we then uh, move along. What James was also doing was opening up the scriptures to them and helping them to see that the Old Testament was there to give them hope because they are now that true, scattered, dispersed Israel. But this title... The twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations would be particularly striking to Christians who had been converted from their being Jews. The majority of the first believers, of course, were at Jews. So were the readers of this letter. James, it seems, would have been a kind of senior pastor. We've not got that as a as a title there, but it might help our own understanding of where he fitted the church would have been overwhelmingly Jewish. There'd been this outbreak of savage persecution. Non-Christian Jews were stoning Jewish Christians to death. What must that have felt like? Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 reads that on the day Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Jewish Christians suffered, in in essence, a double blow, persecuted as being Christians by other religionists and by Nero, but also persecuted by their fellow countrymen as well as being heretics. So we can see why the letter begins with advice about how to handle conflict and trials, and more about that next week. The fact that the persecution in Acts chapter 8 occurred in about AD 35-37 means that James's letter must have been written after that time. There's a Jewish historian called Josephus who recorded that James was condemned and stoned to death in AD 62. So his letter must have been written, we can conclude, before that time. Most scholars feel that this book was probably written around about AD 40, That's not that long after the Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth. It's probably one of the first New Testament books that we have got. And it's a key book in terms of Christian discipleship. No restrictions to our putting faith into practice. These Jewish Christians carry with them the total background and baggage of their religion. We're told about the Grecian uh, Jews and the Hebraic Jews in in Acts chapter 6, a large number of priests becoming Christians. Some of the Pharisees believed. One of Jesus' apostles was Simon, a converted uh, Jewish zealot, while another, Matthew, came from the other end of the political spectrum and was a converted Jewish tax collector working for the Romans. All of these Jews would have brought quite a degree of... Of prejudice and misconceptions into the kingdom of God with them. That sense of baggage that we can bring when we come to faith or when we come into one church from another church, particularly if we've grown up only in one church. So we're not to think of this uh, this, uh, group of Jewish Christians as being one tidy group. They wouldn't have been at all. On Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, he was told by James and the elders of the church in Acts 21, you see, brother, how many of these Jews have now believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. That was that legalistic background that they were bringing in, which was helpful to a point, but it hadn't been when we read in Acts chapter 15, that need for James to speak in at that council of Jerusalem. It's a picture, though, that we've got to bear in mind That's important when we go through this letter. People converted out of Judaism and facing severe persecution. James wants this first generation Christians uh, to live in a right way. And the issues that he hits head on are still very, very relevant for us, which is another reason why we're looking at it. But we need to do so through the lens of knowing what this people group were all about and what they were facing firstly that's important for us but in the same way as we look at ourselves shall i encourage you to look at one another go on just have a little bit of a look around yeah some of you are now smiling others of you have initially had a smile on your face and stopped when you've seen those around you you see we're quite a mixed bunch aren't we when you think about it We've got some here who've been a part of the church for many, many years. And you will remember, maybe, some of the background to the roots of brethrenism that was the heart of the church. Others have had an experience of renewal or come from a more charismatic background. We've got those who are here who've just heard me mention some of those labels and haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. Others of you here have come from an Anglican background. Others of you have had no church background at all. And then you've come and you've heard and you've believed and you're here. So if you want to know what the average Dorchester community church member looks like, there's no one size fits all. Apart from the fact that we believe that that Jesus is the one who is the only way, the truth and the life. And we believe in its entirety the word of God. And I guess there's a few other things we could add into that of primary importance. But the more we speak and share together, the more we will see we've got a lot of different views. And of course, we would all like to support our views as being scriptural. But some of those people here that you love will have a complete scriptural opposite view to you. And it's into that sense of diversity that God's word comes. Diversity, of course, can be a challenge, can't it? But it can be a huge positive as well, if embraced. I want to just take, uh, just one theme. And of course, across church life, there would be many. But let's think about the sort of things that we can get uptight about. And usually there are three things that we get uptight about in churches. The style of worship, the children's work, and the building. That's it. That's it. That tends to be about 90% of the friction that calls across any church. Let's take the issue of our worshipping God in song. I know some of you here really enjoy the older hymns. Others of you don't, and you really enjoy a much newer type of song. Some of you prefer that whole idea of having songs interspersed through the service. Others of you like what's been termed a block of worshipped or or songs that are repeated others obviously think if i've sung that song once i don't then need to sing that same verse or chorus again and of course we have very strong views about that pre-covid we've we've had a whole different view of and pictures not view a whole different sense of picture of what church might look like in the way that we worship god We have a contemporary style here, usually on a Sunday morning, a traditional style on a Sunday evening. And then once a month, we have what we call encounter, where we have uh, songs that are that are played uh, up on the screen. We have the lights off, and it's just people doing their own thing. Uh, And we have, obviously, cafe church, where we meet together, we share together, sometimes we sing, sometimes we don't, all different. And we might all have our own individual preference, That is okay in terms of diversity. What is not okay is when we make our preference into a theology. And I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And when are they going to see the light? Let's embrace that sense of diversity. And you know what? It's almost as if we ought to remember the one that we're worshipping is actually God. And our worship, whether it's through song or how we live our lives, is for him. Not ourselves. Whatever buzz we get out of the way we worship is an added bonus, the icing on the cake. But let's be careful. It's a heart thing, isn't it? Worship. What did Jesus say in John chapter 4? The worshipers that I'm looking for are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Whether that's through a hymn or a course or anything else, stood up, sat down, lying down, really doesn't matter. I had a conversation this week. Let's uh, just share a little bit of history with you from 17 years ago when I joined the church uh, here and uh, a few of you who were around then may well know this story and have a little wry smile to yourselves. I responded to a, a mini advert that said, due to God's many blessings, we are seeking to appoint our first part-time worker. That was, uh, that was the advert in the day. Due to God's many blessings. Well, what was that? I was intrigued, I was fascinated, I was excited. Was it the number of conversions that had been increasing? Was it the financial giving that had been increasing? Was it the queue of people longing to get involved in the Sunday school back in the day? There were only 48 members. I thought I'd give myself an opportunity to go around and have a cup of tea with people. So I asked that question without any word of a lie. 80% at least, it may well have been 90% of those I spoke to. In answer to the question about God's many blessings, well, we used to have the chairs this way round, but now we have the chairs that way round. Now, of course, this is now 17 years on, and you're laughing. I have to tell you, this was no laughing matter 17 years ago. In actual fact, 18 years ago, there were three people that left the church because of the direction of the chair. Now, we may well think, oh, but of course, in similar fashion, we may well have left another church for an equally trivial reason. Or we might leave this one for a trivial uh, reason. So in my first four weeks here, some of you will remember, we faced four different directions in the fourth, first four weeks. And then I asked the question, which is most spiritual in terms of the direction of the chair? And of course, people were thinking this is ridiculous. But it was Something that we could laugh at ourselves, and that's okay. Diversity is okay if we embrace it. So we're going to now worship God together. And it's a heart thing. And one of the songs that Michelle has chosen leads us into that. Lord, you have my heart. And our worship is an expression of what is there within our hearts. And following this song, we're then going to think about what this book might mean to us. Very briefly before we then sing again so we know a little bit about the who uh who wrote it we know who it's for what does all this stuff mean for us Well, Martin Luther, the incredible Christian reformer, suggested that James's letter was nothing other than second-class scripture, rather than affirming its right to be in the Bible alongside things like the Sermon on the Mount. Other scholars have dismissed it as a Jewish piece of writing with superficial Christian editing. Others have described it, and I quote, as having the morality of a working-class gathering marked by resentment against the rich, suspicion of the world and a narrow Christianity lacking in Paul's missionary vision. Some people have said, well, James was in conflict with Paul. No, he wasn't. What we need to understand is what those individual um, uh, uh, men were aiming to communicate. From Paul's perspective, his question was, how is salvation received. And in the book of Romans, he was both asking and answering that question. How is salvation received? Paul's answer was always by faith alone. But to James, the question was different. How is salvation proven? That was the question he was asking. And his answer is always by works alone, by what we do. It is received by faith. It is proven by works. And that's probably the most important thing I've had to say today. If you forget anything else, please do remember that. There's no conflict, but rather harmony. We receive this amazing gospel by faith, but we prove it's real through that which we do. Contrary to some might say, James also gives us some really sound theology as well in terms of suffering, sin, temptation, the fallenness, demonic evil, and indeed of Christ. He uses the word "curios" 11 times. Jesus is Lord to James, the one who's the source of wisdom in chapter 1, the one before whom men are humbled in chapter 4, and the one who is the healer in chapter 5. He explains God to us he uses the name god 17 times he says of himself as we mentioned right the way back at the beginning that he is a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ Dulos is the word servant william barclay says these words he says a doulos was characterized by absolute obedience absolute humility absolute loyalty and pride but in a good sense James was proud to be nothing but a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the best thing for ourselves to aim to be. But it's maybe a right time for us to think about that. Is that how we see ourselves? And alongside that, well, if I am a servant of Jesus, how am I demonstrating that in 2021? how am i demonstrating that when we can't really meet together in the same way and do the same things how can i be a servant yet to others he was that just james was a key leader in the life and growth of the christian church to us as a people of god also fellow servants of jesus he's left both a legacy but also a real challenge and we'll discover that for faith without deeds is dead so we're going to be brought back to basics in terms of what we are doing as an individual Christian and as a people of God. And that's tough, as we've not been having the opportunities legally to actually have ministries going on in the life of the church. As restrictions hopefully fall away, let's not just stay as we are, but seek to regroup and say, God, what are you saying to us in the here and now about what it? means to put our faith into practice as a people of God here. From what we know of the man and his mission, we're going to be looking at enduring tough times, our status and identity, treating people how we would like to be treated, being wise with how we use our tongue Our email, our text could be true in the same way. Keeping the peace, owning our own peace, being in the world but not of the world. The difference between living for now and living for eternity. Coping with suffering, the place of patience, prayer for healing and turning to God on all occasions. That's what we're going to be exploring together over the next three months. There are no restrictions on our putting faith into practice so let's encourage that all the more of one another over the next few weeks we're going to worship God in song again and following the second of these songs Robin is going to come and lead us in a time of prayer and then we've got a message from community kids to one of their own
2: so let's come before the Lord in prayer let us pray Father, we thank you for all the words that have been left for us to guide us to know you to love you and follow you. We thank you for your servant James and the guidance he he provides especially we think of In inviting us to good works. But Lord, we pray that those work, good works, when we do them, will show you to others, not prove how wonderful we are. We love you, Lord, but we are your servants. There are many things going on at the moment, in our world, in our town, in our own lives here in church. And we pray for your intervention, your intervention when things are going well and your intervention when they are not. Lord, we've been asked particularly today to bring before you Tracy as she has further surgery to reverse her stoma. And we pray that you will guide the surgeons, you will give them the skills and the understanding that they need. And Father, we ask for your healing hands to touch Dorcas's daughter, Natasha, She's developed COVID, losing her sense of smell. And Lord, there is so much concern for her. We rejoice when we hear people getting better. Help us to walk alongside those who have lost a loved one because of this disease. We bring before you all those who mourn. And we think especially of the ones who might slip off our radar, Lord, but are still passing through the first time of doing something without a loved one. Lift them up, Lord. And Lord, I pray for all of us here at Community Church trustees, the elders, deacons, our pastor Roger, our musicians, all those who help with the services, may they all have a true understanding, a true feeling in their hearts of your love for them and may all of us understand your love for each and every one of us. Thank you Lord for all you do. We praise you and we make our supplications in the name of our Saviour, your Son, Jesus Christ.
0: Amen fantastic sarah i dare say you'll be squirming a little bit i know you don't like the limelight but we really really do appreciate everything that you have done for our uh, children and for us as a church as well sarah was also a passionate uh, person behind the whole shoebox uh, appeal Uh, we're seeking to not just only do that uh, operation christmas child but become a a central base uh, for that and uh, i know there's a couple of people who've already said they're happy to be part of a a small team to help oversee that You'd like to join forces with that, uh, following that uh, legacy that Sarah's left, then please do have a look myself, or maybe find out a little bit more about uh, from that from Gloria, because Gloria was involved uh, for a number of years in terms of the oversight of that ministry as well. The more, the merrier, particularly as we're thinking about faith without deeds being completely dead i thought it was wonderful that there were parents on there saying thank you for teaching my children we've no idea have we about what is going to happen as a result of what people impart into the lives of our children and if you think well no that's probably surely nothing that happens let me tell you something that occurred last year where i was contacted um From somebody that was asking whether or not they could uh, get uh, married uh, here. Uh, She now already uh, has her family, her own family, um, but they're wanting to be married and we began uh, conversations uh, about that and she said, you don't uh, recognise me, do you? She said, you taught me when I was seven years old in Sunday school in Bournemouth, but I've now moved to Dorchester. Uh, Now, i got all all, uh, wibbly-wobbly-woo, I have to say. So uh, uh, you just never know what God is going to do through what we impart. Not just as junior church teachers, but maybe as we think about our being scattered to where we are. Who knows what God might do through you this day or this week? Maybe a word of wisdom or a word of encouragement or a truth or a particular conversation. Who knows?